You're listening to The Ascent Archive, a podcast of oral histories with rock climbers collected by the University of Utah and produced by the J. Willard Marriott Library. I'm Tali Kasuchi, librarian, rock climber, and oral historian. And I'm Rachel Whitman, and I'm also a librarian. For decades, memory workers, including historians, librarians, and archivists, have conducted oral histories to document life experiences of notable groups of people. These oral history transcripts, and sometimes their accompanying audio and video, are kept in the archives of libraries and museums around the world with varying degrees of access. This podcast, focusing on interviews with rock climbers, is an innovative approach to make oral histories more accessible and easier to listen to on the go or at faster speeds. The Ascent Archive podcast features oral histories that I conducted for the Rock Climbers Oral History Project and others from the American West Center's Ever El Cooley Oral History Project. To find out more about these collections, visit the Ascent Archive website, which is included in the show description. You're about to hear an oral history that is unedited. Please excuse possible interruptions, sound quality issues, potentially outdated or offensive terminology, and the occasional curse word. In this episode, you'll hear from Ron McKay. Ron started climbing as a teenager and has worked for multiple climbing gear companies before going back to school. Ron is now a math professor at Salt Lake Community College. He has loads of great stories and was present for several pivotal moments in outdoor climbing's progression. Hope you enjoy. Good afternoon. It's October 19th, 2022. I'm Tally Kasuchi, and I'm talking with Theron McKay at the Marriott Library in Salt Lake City about rock climbing. So to get started, do you mind introducing yourself and tell Uh, me a little bit about it was like growing up? Yeah, well, uh, I'm Ron McKay, and um, I'm originally from Pennsylvania, so that's where I was born, and most of my family lives back there. I was born in 1970, so do the arithmetic, uh, 52 now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, and but I've lived in Utah um, since 1996, so I believe that's 26 years now that I've been in Utah, so quite a while. Yeah. yeah. Were you in Pennsylvania uh, all before coming to Utah? No, no. I, I lived in Pennsylvania um, through school, through high school, um, and after high school I went to one year of college in Pennsylvania. Um, but I was already climbing back then, and so after one year of college, I dropped out, and I, I moved out west and um, ended up living in Bend, Oregon for six years. So from 90 to 96, I was living in Bend, Oregon and climbing at Smith Rocks, and and then uh, uh, came here after that. Oh, neat. Yeah. What was it like growing up in Pennsylvania? What did you do before you started climbing? Yeah, so um, I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia, and um, it's, you know, it's it's a nice place to grow up, actually, and all my family's still back there, so um, I just recently went and visited, and every time I go home, I'm always, like, struck by how nice it is, you know, even though, you know, it's the East Coast, so it's, it's uh, you know, it's it's different than out here in Utah for sure. Um, but where I grew up, I wouldn't call it rural, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a 
a little bit like a rainforest. Like it's it's so heavily vegetated, so there's just woods and trees and you know plenty of open space, uh, but different than our open space for sure. But I definitely grew up, you know, running around climbing trees and things like that, and playing in creeks and stuff, catching frogs and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, lots of opportunity to be outside and, and playing outside and stuff. So, um, but you know, Pennsylvania, like the suburbs, I mean, um, you know, culturally, it's it's definitely different as well. And and uh, but it, it you know it's it's a fine place to to grow up and good food, lots of good food, that's for sure. So. Um, but yeah, I, I learned to climb back in Pennsylvania. Um, well, actually I learned to climb in, in New York, but while I was a kid growing up in Pennsylvania. So, um, my high school had a, like an outdoor program that was just like a, a, one of the teachers, um, he was the drafting teacher. He, he ran this program and it was kind of like loosely based on maybe like an outward bound style model and um, so they did climbing trips and backpacking and canoeing cross-country skiing and caving and stuff like this and um, when I discovered that there was a climbing trip I was like oh my gosh like I'm totally gonna go on that you know and uh, so when I was 15 I was a sophomore I kind of blew it I didn't even realize it at when I was a freshman so I, I missed the opportunity my freshman year but in my by my sophomore year, I was like, "Oh, I'm definitely doing that." And um, he would organize it so that it was a four day trip to go to the Shawgunks up in New York. And um, so it was it was great. It was a great way to learn to climb, and um, even really like how to organize a climbing trip because we he would walk us through the whole process. Like we would we would make our grocery lists and our, our lists of camping equipment and stuff like that. You know, you'd have to have your tent and your sleeping bag and everything and um and we would all go grocery shopping and, and you know, he I think he would take like eight to ten students on these trips, something like that. And uh, we would pile in a van and, and drive. It was about a four-hour drive, and um, we would get to miss two days of school, so we'd miss a Thursday, Friday, and we would go and, and camp out right by the Shawgunks and, um, and climb for, for like four days. So, yeah, it was great. Um, so I had that going for me, and then um, locally as well, like Pennsylvania – um, it, there's not a lot of rock climbing in Pennsylvania, but, you know, it is kind of like, uh, you know, maybe you describe it as like the foothills of the Appalachians. So there's definitely like scruffy little chunks of rock that you can find. And so we had some stuff like my friends and I in high school, we had some stuff that was just down the road from our house, like an old quarry. And we would go do boulder problems and stuff like that there. But, um, yeah, so that's how I got climbing growing up in Pennsylvania. Um, and so all through high school, I got to go on these trips to the Shawgunks because we would do one in the fall and one in the spring. And um, so I was doing that. And then by the time I was probably a junior or certainly by the time I was a senior, um, the uh, the teacher that that ran that program he would let me and my friend that was uh, had also gone on the trips he would let us borrow the the gear the school's gear he had a full rack and a, and a rope and stuff and so we would we would borrow the gear and go on our own trips so we did a couple trips to the Shawgunks just on our own and um, 
Yeah, so that's that's how I got started, and uh, he actually, <laughs> you would never see this happen today because of, like, liability, you know, <laughs> but um, when I was on those trips, you know, at first it was just like they would set up top ropes. He, he had a, a friend that would come along on the trips, so to help set up the ropes and stuff, and another teacher that would go as well, and so mostly it was just top roping, but there's also some bouldering at the Shawgunks as well, so I kind of like saw what bouldering was like like early on, and then um, pretty much I was climbing all the top ropes cleanly that they would set up, you know, and I was like, what's next, what's next, you know, and so he told me, my the teacher that ran the trips, he said, okay, look, um, I'll let you lead climb, but you have to like boulder around and put the gear in and, you know, uh, put a sling on it and stand on it so that you can see that the that the gear holds. And you have mm-hmm. to convince me that you can do that, and then I'll let you lead climb. And so I my first lead was, you know, just some some 5'2 in the Shawgunks <laughs> on one of those school trips. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, I think it was, yeah, I was just hooked right from the get-go. I was just like, more please, you know. <laughs> by the end of my, by the end of high school, um, because I was, at that point, I was already climbing better than the teacher, and um, he would let me go on the trips for free, uh, but I had to kind of, I was like a, a student mentor, basically. So I would go, and then I would set the top ropes up for the other students. So that was just my senior year that I got to do that. So, but yeah. Oh, that's very cool that you got introduced via school. (laughs) Yeah, it's really rare. Yeah. And it was just a public school. Um, I don't know how he got away with, I mean, (laughs) you know, it's just amazing to me nowadays. You would not see something like that in a public school. No. I think maybe just people didn't realize what he was doing. You know, <laughs> honestly, I mean, my parents didn't know, like I would come home and I'd be like, yeah, I went rock climbing. They had no idea, you know, what, what that meant, you know, <laughs> uh, but it was a great way to be introduced to the sport. And, um, you know, it was like, I did a lot of sports as a kid, you know, little league and, and, um, you know, playing lots of Nerf football and, and, you know, ba- uh, basketball in the cul-de-sac and played golf with my family and stuff and and um you know did all all of those different things but like I also skateboarded and and um you know just was as I mentioned was into the outdoors just climbing trees and stuff so to go climbing and to go to the Shawgunks which you know this was in the late 80s or mid to late 80s it was like 85 the first time I went um and at that point you know the Shawgunks was still one of the premier areas like in the country certainly on the east coast and um you know for me to like to see it and be like whoa there's a whole world that exists around this you know um I mean you would just see it you would go climbing there and be like there goes Lynn Hill or there goes Scott Franklin or you know these people that were like you know famous you know big name climbers climbing at that area and you know reading about that and and just seeing it firsthand and I was like wow this is amazing and I mean I just took to it instantly I, there was just like no doubt in my mind like I am a rock climber <laughs> you know it was like I just found it you know and that was it I just never looked back so 
Oh, that's neat. Yeah, yeah. what was the community like at the Gunks? Well, you remember. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it was a really strong community. Um, and, you know, I was just a kid and from Pennsylvania, so I never really felt like I was part of the community per se. But, you know, um, I remember interacting with people while we were there and, you know, just asking questions like, you live here? So so the Shawgunks is right by New Paltz, New York, and, and that's a cool little town and one of the state universities of New York, so a SUNY branch is there. And, um, you know, so it's it's thriving, and, and I think even – I haven't been there in years – um, but I bet even to this day that it's got a thriving community, you know, but even back then for sure that it did. And at that point, too, um, in the in the late 80s, um, you know, climbing was starting to have a, a bit of a, an identity crisis because sport climbing was starting to happen. And it was certainly happening in Europe already. And it was starting to get going in the U.S., but the Shawgunks is a traditional area. You know, most of the climbs are, are gear protected, though there are there's a few bolts here and there, I guess. But um, at that point, there was a cohort of, like, pretty strong climbers in the Gunks that were wanting to start bolting there. And, I mean, it, it basically, you know, boiled to a head. And, um, you know, I remember we were there on one of our school trips, and there was, like, this community meeting and, you know, the teacher was like, we're going. And so we got to go to this meeting. I don't remember where it was. It was in some sort of, like, public space or something in New Paltz. So we went, and there were all these climbers, and they were arguing about whether or not to bowl or not to bowl in, in the Shawgunks, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was just this impressionable you know, 15, 16 year old kid at that point. And I was just like, this is crazy, (laughs) you know? And, uh, I think for me, like I, I still appreciate the traditional ethic and I attribute some of that to learning to climb in the gunks. And I always say like, I'll go trad climbing once or twice a year just to keep myself honest. Um, but even back then I was kind of drawn towards, because I think I was coming, coming into climbing from, you know, listening to a lot of punk rock music, skateboarding and stuff like this. So I already kind of had a little bit of a a counterculture, you know, mentality anyway. And then I came into climbing and I was like, well, this is totally different. And then even within that, there was this cohort of climbers that were like, you know, this is going to be the future of climbing. And they were talking about sport climbing, you know. <laughs> so they were right. <laughs> I mean, look at it now. Um, but so I was drawn to that, and I was like, "Wow!" Though, like, I want to do, I want to do what they're what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to climb hard. I want to climb on sport climbs. And yeah, so I was really drawn to that. And um, but yeah, so that was really interesting to see that firsthand. And then my the teacher that ran those trips, he was the the drafting teacher, so it was like mechanical drawing. And so I took that class as an elective. And he, you know, he was a climber. He was like an old school climber. But um, he had like a subscription to Climbing Magazine and, and I guess maybe some Rock and Ice as well. And he would bring those magazines in. He would get the new one and he would bring them in. And he knew I was so excited about climbing. He would just like hand off his climbing magazines to me. And so then I'm, like, reading these climbing magazines, and I probably wouldn't have been exposed to those, you know, had he not done that for me. 
Um, and so, you know, I got to read in those magazines. It was like, it was like the golden age. Well, I don't know if golden age is appropriate, but it was like, you know, John Backer and Ron Kalk were like the big guns in Yosemite, you know? And so there were articles about those guys. And then there were articles about, you know, Todd Skinner and, you know, Christian Griffith and Alan Watts and Scott Franklin and, you know, all these people. And I'm just like a kid, you know, sitting in my class, like sloughing off my work, you know, <laughs> reading those articles and just being like, okay, like this is what I want to go do, you know? <laughs> um, but, you know, I think it's tough at first, you know, it's like, it's hard to imagine that you're just going to like pack up your bag and take off. But, um, I did basically do that, but it, it took about a year, you know, it's like I graduated high school. I was like, okay, now I'm supposed to go to college. So I did. And then I was like, no, nah, this isn't happening. And, and then I packed up my bags and left. <laughs> And moved out west. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Huh. That's so neat that you were there for those conversations. Is yeah. there anything else that kind of stood out from the community gathering from do we bolt or do we not bolt the gunks? So this was, this was like, this was like, um, I don't remember the exact year if it was, it probably wasn't 85. It might have been like 86 or could have even been 87. So it was pretty early. Mm -hmm. But I remember this one guy you know, talking about how if they didn't allow bolting, um, that there's just no way that they would ever be able to climb 514 mm -hmm. at the Shawgunks. Oh. And, and at this point, like, I don't think anybody was caught, like there were no 514s, mm -hmm. you know, this was like pre to Boulder, not to be at Smith rocks. So to hear somebody hypothesizing, about climbing 514, it was just like, you know, I was like, what is he talking about? You know, it was Jordan Mills was the guy's name. He's kind of a well-known uh, gunks climber. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there was a little cohort of them. And, and in fact, actually, um, uh, one guy lives here in Salt Lake. Doug Hunter is a local climber. And he, he, was, he went to school in, in, at SUNY and is from Pennsylvania, actually, um, similar neighborhood to me. And I met him in the gunks, but um, it was like Jordan Mills and Al Diamond and Scott Franklin. Um, those were the guys that were climbing really strong in the gunks at that time. And I remember it was Jordan Mills that said that about climbing 514. And I was just like, whoa, that is nuts that, that they're thinking like that, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and it was probably soon after that would have been right around that same time that, you know, the first 514 in the U.S. got established, but it was in, it was in Smith Rocks. Mm -hmm. So, and that was the other thing. I was reading about Smith Rocks. And then the other thing was I was reading about all these places in Europe, you know, and that greatly influenced me as well. And, um, you know, I was like, I'm definitely going to France. I'm definitely going to Spain. Like, got to go climbing at all these places, you know, because it was just mind blowing that that was a thing that you could just like go on a climbing trip and it gave you an excuse to go to all these far off places, you know. Mm -hmm. So I think as a as a kid growing up in the suburbs and I see this with my own family, you know, when I go home to visit, you know, their idea of traveling is like going to a, an all-inclusive resort, you know, somewhere, you know, in the Bahamas or something like that, you know. Um, but for me as a kid, I was like, oh, my God, like, you know, people travel, you know, but for a reason. 
<laughs> not to just relax. Yeah, like we're not going to go just lay on the beach. Like we're going to go and, you know, go climbing, you know. Mm. And, uh, yeah, so that was early on mm-hmm. in my mind. I mean, to this day, like it hasn't left, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> I still want to go. <laughs> yeah. I do. I, I have gone on many trips. So, but yeah, that was early on that that got in my head. So, oh, that's neat. Is yeah. that what drew you to move to out to Bend, to Smith? Yes, absolutely. So, um, when I left Pennsylvania, I had a friend that I climbed with quite a lot in high school, and he lived in Salt Lake for years too. His name was Dan Cosboon. He lives up in Wyoming now, and he doesn't climb anymore. Um, but he and I, um, I kind of. I didn't really con him into it, but it, maybe I was like, come on, dude, let's go, you know. Um, I convinced him. It was. It's funny because um, I teach I teach college now. I teach math at the Salt Lake Community College. And um, so I joke, and it's from this, because, um, you know, there's this idea of a gap year. Well, he, my friend Dan and I, like, we took a gap year, except uh, I took mine as a gap decade. <laughs> And I tell my students, I say, gap years are for rich kids and gap decades are for poor kids. <laughs> you know? um, and that's kind of what happened for me. But uh, he and I uh, packed up his little car. He was my main climbing partner. And he, he had paralleled me with everything I was describing with climbing mm-hmm. in the gunks and stuff like that. And um, we packed up his little car and we drove out. We spent the winter in Waco Tanks which at that point was kind of just coming on the radar, sort of coming on the national radar. So it was like winter of 89, 90. And uh, it, there had been some, like there had been an article written about it. John Sherman had written an article about it in one of the, in one of the magazines, climbing magazines. So that's kind of how we heard about it. And, you know, back then it wasn't like you could go online and order the guidebook. So you had to have the magazine that had the directions and had a couple of like little, you know, route recommendations or whatever. And, you know, those were our guidebooks, you know, and that would get us to where we're going. So so we went to Waco Tanks and spent the winter there. I was just like 19 at the time and, um, you know, spent like four months like living, living at uh, it was Pete and Kata's. Quonset Hut was the classic place everybody lived and learned about bouldering. You know, I'd already been bouldering because I, I have always roped, climb, and boulder like from day one. Like just, you know, it's just part of how I learned. So going to Waco Tanks, it was, you know, boulder. It was pre-pads. Nobody had any pads or anything like that. There were no V-grades. It was like before V-grades were invented. And, um, you know, just kind of working through some of the classics and meeting some of the locals, like met John Sherman, you know, met Todd Skinner, um, met Chris Hill, who was like a, a, well young, a well-known young climber at the time. So he was only like maybe a year older than us at the time. But he at the time, he was the youngest American to have climbed uh, 13A. So that was like a big deal. You know, we'd read about him. Um, but yeah, like, and spent the winter there. And then after that, it was like, okay, now where do we go? Because we were basically, it was just like a big road trip, you know. And so we meandered our way to the north and we really wanted to climb at Smith Rocks because that was kind of the cutting edge sport climbing of that era. And so it went there. And um, my my friend Dan... We, we were at Smith Rocks for probably like two months or something like that, maybe three months. 
And my friend Dan that I was traveling with, he was from Pennsylvania as well. He he was like, I think I'm going to go. And I was like, all right, see you later. Like, I'm staying. <laughs> like, you know, Bend is a totally awesome little town. It's changed a lot apparently. But back then it was a really little town. Smith Rocks was awesome. I'd gotten a job and I was just like, I'm staying. Like, there's no reason for me to leave this place. Like, this place is everything I'm looking for. And uh, so I ended up staying and I lived there for like six years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and I traveled a bit. It's Bend is a little bit, um, one of the reasons why I left Bend is because geographically, you're like kind of isolated. Like, you're sort of stuck in the corner there of the U.S. <laughs> and while Smith Rocks is amazing, it's temperamental, like, conditions-wise. Like, the season's really tough there. Like, it's when it's hot, it's just miserable, and it, it gets hot, you know. And you don't really have a lot of alternatives um, without having to drive, like, forever, you know. It's like, I think, like, to get to City of Rocks, it's, like, at least six hours or something like that. Mm -hmm. So there's just nothing else. You know, you can go to Squamish, it's, like, six hours away. You can go to City of Rocks, it's, like, six hours away. But I was like, man, this is, it's a little too isolated, mm -hmm. like, if you want to climb other places. Mm -hmm. And so that that's one of the reasons why, you know, I was like, maybe I should look around somewhere else to live and that's what brought me to Salt Lake mm -hmm. in 96. Okay. What was yeah. the what was the climbing scene like in Smith Rock in the early 90s? Oh, it was great. It was great. So, I think uh one of the one of the things um I was I was thinking about this um earlier. One of the things uh is I've always been like maybe a season off of like when things are really at their peak, you know, and I think it's just a function of like my age in some sense, mm -hmm. you know, because, um, you know, when I got to Smith Rocks, it was like 1990, 1991, you know, so that the, the, the late 80s was when Smith Rocks was like really going crazy and everybody was going to Smith Rocks and all these international climbers were going to Smith Rocks. And by the time I got there, it had kind of quieted down a little bit, but, like, there was still some crazy stuff going going on, you know, like, really amazing climbers coming through. And, you know, it's like, I don't know, you know, like, I don't know if you've ever heard the, I don't know if you call it a cliche or whatever, but, you know, when you say someone puts on a clinic... No. So, what like, you if mean? you see somebody that does something really well, well it's oh. like they're putting on a clinic. Oh, okay, you yes. Know? So, <laughs> yeah. So, like, you know, you'd go out to you'd go out to Smith Rocks, and it would just be like, well, here's an amazing climber, and they're just putting on a clinic. It's just mm -hmm. like, you know, oh, tucking a lap on a five fourteen. You're like, who does that? Like, you know, in in the early '90s, not very many people were doing yeah. that. You know, and so yeah, I mean, I got to see some. Uh, amazingly talented climbers, and and the local community was was really uh, pretty talented as well. Like there was definitely a little cohort of folks that lived in Bend, you know, that were really strong climbers. And um, there's two businesses; they still exist, uh, Entreprise and Metolius, that are located in Bend. So that kind of was the gel that sort of held together the local climbing community. So it was like you either worked for one or the other one of those companies, you know, and it brought a lot of folks like similar to me. It brought people there. And then, you know, if you got your foot in the door at one of those companies, 
then, you know, you had a community and you had climbing partners, you had cheap gear, you know, discounts on gear and things like that. So it was it was pretty good. Which company did you work for? I worked for both of those. I worked okay. for Entrepreneurs initially, um, the, like the first couple of years that I lived in Bend. And then later I worked for Metolius as well. Yeah. What was yeah. what were you doing there, and what was that like? Uh, for entrepreneurs, so uh, this was back in the day when um, artificial walls, like they weren't really making them out of wood. You know, maybe you would see like a little woody in somebody's house, but even that was pretty rare. And so entrepreneurs would make their walls out of it was the same material that climbing holds is made out of, like that you know the resin and the, the sand, but it was like these meter by meter panels. And they were kind of modular, so they would they had different shapes. But when you built the walls, it was like um, you know a scaffolding, and then the face was these meter by meter panels that would you'd bolt them together in different configurations to give the wall some topography. And so we were the guys in the shop making those panels, and also pouring some of the holds as well. So it was it was pretty disgusting work actually like it's a horrible toxic environment (laughs) but you know I was like 21 22 whatever it was like I was it was fine you know Mm -hmm. it was I was happy for the paycheck and you know um if you you know left work early to go climbing it was kind of just part of the deal you know (laughs) we were all doing it you know so it was great and then of course you would get you know, like discounts on climbing shoes and stuff like that, like pro deals, you know, mm-hmm. which at the time was amazing, right? Like as a 20 year old kid to get a deal on a pair of climbing shoes, you're just like, ah, I just hit the jackpot, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so that was great. And then, um, I got to go on a couple of, uh, of the installs. So that mm-hmm. was cool. I got to, you know, cause working in the shop was one thing, but then we would sell the walls and the, you know, um, they would send a team out to install them. And I got to go on a couple of those jobs. Uh, so that was cool. And that led to another job um, that I had with a traveling climbing wall um, for Jansport, the backpack company. I traveled around and set up a climbing wall and did demos for, for them for a couple of a couple of years. But that was like a, a seasonal job. Mm. So, But that was pretty cool. And for Metolius, I worked in the um, sewing department. And um, so like their soft goods department. So making... Uh, rope bags and um, backpacks and um, crash pads and chalk bags and things like that. And uh, but I was a cutter, not a sewer. So I I was the guy. We would get the order, be like, okay, we need to make like three hundred chalk bags, and I would have all of the material pre-cut, and then just feed it to the sewers, and then they they would sew it all up. So. So I did that for a few years, and that was good, too. That was great. Metolius is great. Well, I don't know what it's like now, but back then it was a great company to work for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was cool. Oh, that's neat. Yeah. Did you mainly work at those two companies while in Bend? Yeah. Um, that and the traveling wall job I did while I was still living in Bend. Mm-hmm. Um, before, I guess probably maybe before I worked for Entreprise, like, the very, very first job I had was, like, at a pizza place, mm-hmm. you know, something mm-hmm. like that, just to get my yeah. foot in the door, you know. Mm-hmm. So I worked there, yeah. But, yeah, mostly for those two companies. That's so. neat. For the Jansport job, yeah. what was that like uh, in terms of probably introducing people to climbing 
for the first well, time. <laughs> so, yeah, so this is in the 90s, right? So um, not a lot of exposure like there is today, right? Mm-hmm. No, no free solo, no Olympics, you know, so maybe... I don't even, I mean, maybe you would see, like, Wide World of Sports. You might have seen some, you know, or, or you know that Mount Everest is a thing or something like that, right? And Jansport was, um, you know, they're basically just trying to sell backpacks. And mostly they were just trying to sell, like, school backpacks. They weren't even really trying to, like, break into the outdoor industry per se. But they had bought this little climbing wall. It was a freestanding wall, three-sided, so kind of like a little mini pyramid. And we toured it around, and we would set it up in malls. (laughs) How tall was this? It was maybe 12 feet tall. Okay. Yeah, it had top ropes. Uh It had three top ropes. And so we would tour it around and um, set it up in a mall, and uh, it was free to climb on. So the, the gimmick was... If you wanted to climb on the wall, you had to go, you know, to the store down the way that sold Jansport backpacks, and you had to get yourself, like, the coupon, and then bring it back, and then you could climb on the wall. Mm. And then, you know, then maybe you were likely to go buy a Jansport backpack or something like that. And so it was free to climb on, and so, I mean, we had people just lined up. I mean, people, you know, we, we would be, we would belay, because it was just, just tie people on and belay them. And I mean, it was you know, 10 hours or 12 hours, however long the mall was open that day. And it was just people just nonstop. And I was like the climber on the tour. Everybody else, they were just like marketing folks. And uh, they were all from Milwaukee because Jansports, uh, their corporate headquarters, I don't know if it still is, but they used to be based out of Wisconsin, like Mm -hmm. Appleton, Wisconsin or somewhere like that. Mm -hmm. And so this marketing company, they had reached out to entrepreneurs and said, hey, you know, we want to do this thing and and they ended up not using an entrepreneur's wall but they were like we need somebody that can like knows how to put a wall up and knows about climbing because we don't know anything and so that's how I got the job and they would fly me from Bend and uh, I would I would I would fly and fly to Milwaukee get in this big truck and then we would drive and we we went all over the country up and down the east coast uh all through the Midwest and up and down the West Coast, like over 20 different cities that I went to with this climbing wall. And it was it was seasonal. I did it for probably maybe two years, and it would be like I'd be on the road for like a month or two months, mm-hmm. and we would do a different city every weekend. And so I did that for a couple of different chunks of time. So it was good. It was cool. It was an amazing experience. It was lousy for my climbing because because <laughs> there weren't really climbing gyms mm-hmm. yet, you know. And so I couldn't really climb and the wall itself was kind of garbage. It wasn't like I could really, you know, it was like a for kids to climb on at the mall, so it wasn't like mm-hmm. you could climb, you know. So. <laughs> but it was a lot of fun and I made a lot of money, mm-hmm. you know, for the time, like mm-hmm. for me at that time, mm-hmm. you know. So that was good. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's cool. <laughs> Super cool. Are there any um, climbs from when you were in Bend that were really memorable in terms of your progression in the sport? Yeah, definitely. Like, um, well, I mean, Smith Rock is Smith Rocks is, is so iconic, like in terms of the list of routes there. But I progressed. My route climbing really progressed there. Um, 
you know, grade by grade. Like, I did my first 12C there. It was Chain Reaction. Um, I did my first 12D there. It was Kings of Rap. I did my first 13A there. It was Churning in the Wake. Um, I guess I, my first 13B was there, which was Agro Monkey. Um, first 13C was Rude Boys. So, you know, that sort of progression... Rude Boys maybe gets a slash grade these days, BC, but in my mind back then it was 13C. Anyway, that sort of progression, you know, happened for me uh, in the time that I lived there. And um, even in the first year, so I had only been out west for a year, and I had already climbed uh, 512 even before I'd come out west, like just in Pennsylvania and in the, in the Shaw Gunks. I had climbed as hard as 512 already. And so, you know, I went from 512 to 513 in that in that first year. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so that was a big deal, you know, because it sort of validated like the whole, you know, in my mind, at least, mm-hmm. you know, to be a 19 year old kid and be like, see you later. I'm dropping out of college and moving out west. And, you know, everybody else is like, you're doing what? <laughs> but then I was able to progress through the grades and I was like, OK, this is happening. You know, this is this is I'm, I'm improving at this thing, mm-hmm. you know, in, in a notable way. So. Mm-hmm. 13A was hardly, like, revolutionary at the time. I mean, you know, 14A had already been done, so it was, you know, but for me at the time it was, you know, notable. So, mm-hmm. yeah, and I had to work hard for it, though. <laughs> don't we all? Yes. Some, some kids don't. That's true. These days, these days they don't. So, yeah. I've always had to work hard. Yeah, exactly. Well, and then another thing uh, in – Locally in Bend, you know, um, there's actually quite a lot of bouldering in that area. And I think, like, on a national scale, people don't know about it necessarily, but um, there's quite a lot of bouldering. And I I did a lot of bouldering when I lived there because um, Bend is probably, it's like a good 40 minutes probably to get from Bend to Smith Rocks. You know, it's not like out the back door. Like, you got to drive a little bit. And so a lot of the time when I was living in Bend, you know, if it was like I worked that day or whatever, uh, you know, and couldn't make it all the way out to Smith Rocks, it just wasn't enough daylight, basically, you know, and we would just all go bouldering. And there's a lot of local areas that are mm-hmm. just right in, right outside of town, basically. Mm-hmm. And so I, I climbed quite a bit um, and, and developed some bouldering, you know, um, and it's still really popular. Like there's, I was just watching some YouTube video and, um, you know, there's like a thriving bouldering scene in Bend Mm. and it's really cool to see. And there's a guidebook even for central Oregon bouldering. And, um, the cover photo of that is a boulder problem that I, that I found and cleaned up. I I can't say I got the first ascent because I think either Jim Carn or Brooke Sandell snaked the first ascent on me, but it was my problem. (laughs) (laughs) I got to name it at least. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, so that's cool. And um, yeah, we, there was some other bouldering. There was this place called the skeleton cave. That was a lava tube. Mm -hmm. Um, And we spent hours and hours bouldering in that, which was super fun. Because Smith Rocks is not very steep, mm-hmm. but this lava tube is like fully horizontal boulder problems on on like this really um, amazingly featured like basalt lava flow type stone. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really cool to climb on that back in the day. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there were there were things like that, um, and yeah, just climbing at Smith Rocks, just the history there and the lines there and. You know, the other thing about Smith Rocks that influenced me, I would have to say, 
as a climber is like it forces you to have good footwork and also you know it's as run out as sport climbs can get and <laughs> you know it's like a lot of the old climbs the first bolt is like pretty high up now nowadays everybody stick clips them you know but this was like we didn't we weren't smart enough to make a stick clip so we were just like bouldering 10 feet over bad landings to get to the first bolt you know and then some of the routes like things like heinous clang you know the full heinous clang i mean i, I you know you can take 40 foot whippers off of the, that thing, you know? And so like, that's what I was doing as a young, you know, growing climber was like, okay, I'm trying these roots. And it's just like, guess that's just normal. Like you just took a 40 footer. I mean, it would scare the crap out of you, mm-hmm. you know, but that was just normal, you know? So nowadays when people are like, oh, it's run out, you know, like, they, oh, the bolts like blow my knee. And I'm just like, okay, <laughs> like, go to Smith rocks, you know? It's like you gotta really be able to step above your bolts, you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so stuff like that was definitely impactful mm-hmm. from a climbing perspective. Yeah. What was it like from for bouldering to go from Waco tanks, no pads, to yeah. then eventually working and cutting for bouldering pads? <laughs> yeah. Well, um, you know, so bouldering pads, um, you know, people were kind of making their own sort of scroungy pad type things. And then there was a couple of companies early on, like, um, I know that uh, there was an old company, I don't know if they're around anymore, Kinaloa, and they had an early pad. And then, um, like, Cordless was an early company that was making pads. And so um, I, when I was working at Metolius in the sewing department, um, it was before Metolius made bouldering pads. And I was like, we need to make bouldering pads. And so I, and we had all this foam because they actually used to make um, sleeping pads that were foam. I had one forever. They're actually nice because they never, you can't pop it. That was, that was the marketing, can't pop it, right? Because it wasn't like a thermarest. So we had all this foam and we had all this big fabric and I was like, I'm going to make, I saw like a cordless pad or whatever. And I was like, why don't we, I'm going to just make one of those, you know? And so I just, like, found some scraps, you know, in the sewing department and had someone show me how to do a little bit of sewing or whatever. And I sewed up this pad, and it was totally garbage, you know, because it was, like, the wrong kind of foam, and the material was, like, kind of slippery and stuff, you know. But I was like, whatever, I made this pad, and I was like, check it out, like, I made a bouldering pad, you know. And, um... And then one of my other friends that worked there, he made one for himself. And, you know, because he saw how bad mine was, he was like, I can do better than that. So he made a one that was a little bit nicer. And then it caught the attention of, you know, the owners of the company. So Brooke Sandell is, was one of the owners. I, I think he still is, but I'm not sure about that. Um, anyway, you know, he was like, oh, that's a good idea. Like, we can make these, you know. And it was just sort of at the time where, you know, the 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 demand for it was starting to happen, you know. So this would have been like ninety-four, ninety-five, somewhere in that somewhere in that range before I moved here mm-hmm. to Salt Lake. And so then yeah, he was like, Okay, cool. And then, you know, they actually made some nice ones. You know, they had the actual sewers and they got the better foam and they got the material and stuff like that, the non slippery material. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, that was that was pretty interesting to see that happen, you know. 
I don't really give myself any more credit than just what I described because <laughs> they would have gotten there anyway mm-hmm. on their own. It was just that, you know, I just happened to be there and mm-hmm. just was like, why don't I make one of these? You know, <laughs> so <laughs> we can do better. <laughs> yeah, they were like, we can do better for sure. Like, no doubt, yeah. please do, please yes. do do better. You know, yeah. so yeah, so that was cool. But yeah, the bouldering and the pads and stuff, you know. Um, like to this day like I just went bouldering yesterday and um, to this day I think that bouldering pads are like a blessing and a curse all at the same time Mm -hmm. because I used to love going bouldering for its simplicity you know I was like shoes in a chalk bag and I'm out the door you know and now I'm like trudging through the woods like carrying a mattress on my back you know (laughs) I'm like stumbling around I'm like the the darn thing weighs more than I do you know and I'm like this is horrible like I have to drag this thing everywhere I go you know Mm -hmm. and then you get spoiled because once you do a boulder problem with a giant Mondo pad underneath you like you're never going to do one without it Mm -hmm. but yeah it's it doesn't feel so simple anymore like actually it feels like it's flipped to me where like going sport climbing seems way simpler than going bouldering hmm. because you, you're not carrying a mattress you, know, <laughs> you don't need a posse full of spotters right mm-hmm. you just need one other partner mm-hmm. and you know one partner one rope 12 draws sometimes you don't even need draws mm-hmm. and you're and you're off to the races you know mm-hmm. bouldering is involved <laughs> now the starts are changing yes it starts are changing yep it used to be so much simpler mm-hmm. so yeah oh, definitely so what brought you to Utah yeah so um I like I said you know I had been uh uh sort of realizing that um you know Bend was feeling sort of isolated in terms of you know climbing options and and I think also that had a little bit of influence on you know the locals, um, you know, because when all you ha- when all you end up doing is going climbing and falling off, you know, you do the same warm up and then you fall off the same move on your project and then you do the, you know hit repeat ten times and you're like this is madness and then you're just like I'm not I'm not even going anymore, you know. So there was like a lot of that happening. I could see where like. You know, just like not very motivated, at, at least at that time with that cohort. You know, it, it can change, right? Because communities evolve and you get different energy from different folks. So I'm not saying it's like that now. But at that time, I was kind of seeing that maybe that's what was happening. And I wasn't ready to kind of fall into that. And, you know, meanwhile, you know, uh, places like Rifle were going off. Um, the climbing here in Utah was going off. Um, I had already spent. Uh, a summer I spent the summer of 1991 here in Salt Lake and climbing in American Fork quite extensively Mm -hmm. Um, so that was like a little hiatus from Bend I had been in Bend and then I came here for a summer spent the summer here climbed and then I went back to Bend Mm -hmm. and um, so I knew what American Fork was like um, and I had friends that were here in Salt Lake already um, and so from Bend, I went on this big trip. I went to Australia. It was like my, that was my second international climbing trip. So I went to Australia and stayed for three months. Um, and when I came back, I was like, you know, Matoli, I had left Matolias to go on that trip and they were like, okay, well, you know, you can come back. Like, 
you know, it might be different. We might have to find something different for you to do because we had to replace you. You know, they could they weren't couldn't hold my job forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've been really awesome about letting me go on trips, so mm-hmm. I, I didn't hold it against them or anything. Mm-hmm. But I went on that trip to Australia. I came back, and I was like, well, I don't really have you know, anything holding me here in Bend anymore. And my girlfriend at the time, she was sort of in the same boat. She'd gone on the trip to Australia with me. And we just talked about it. We were like, well, maybe we should look around and see what else there is out there, you know? And so we kind of did that and like toured around a little bit in the U.S. and um, in the Western states. And it ended up coming to Salt Lake sort of at the tail end of visiting all these other places. And it was just too easy to move here at the time. It was 96, 1996. So came into Salt Lake, already had a bunch of friends, you know, that I knew, you know, just climbers that I knew, um, had a place to live, like, immediately, like a room to rent, basically. Um, ended up uh, getting a job at Black Diamond, like, you know, called in a favor to get a job working in the warehouse at Black Diamond, you know, and then it was the fall, so I also ended up uh, getting a job at Snowbird for that winter, and it was just too easy. It was just like, oh, this is an easy place like to settle, you know, mm-hmm. and um, and then I needed no convincing about the climbing because you know the climbing is just, you know, I already knew about it, and there's just so much of it, and it's there's plenty of hard routes, and even at that time there was like a really strong thriving community, you know, and so that was appealing, and you know one of the things about me is like um, I like I like being in a place like Salt Lake Bend was like this for me as well. Like, I don't, I don't necessarily want to be like the best climber in town, you know, because that means it's a really little town, (laughs) 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 you know, with three roots. (laughs) Like I want to live somewhere where there's a strong, like I want to live somewhere where there are strong climbers, you know, Mm -hmm. and a strong community and stuff like that. Bend was like that, but Salt Lake is, you know, probably even next level Mm -hmm. you know like I I think that I've said this before about Salt Lake and this is going all the way back to 96 even you know where I think Salt Lake is like one of the epicenters for climbing in the US you know you have places like Yosemite which will always be kind of kind of have that you know but Yosemite's a national park and you know it's like where do you live where do you work like you know it's you're either you're either uber rich or you're a dirt bag or you're driving like two hours to get there from San Francisco or Sacramento or something like that. So it's not the same as Salt Lake, mm-hmm. you know. You have the um, Front Range in Colorado, right? So that's similar, I would say. So that's a bit of another bit of a an epicenter. And you see it, right? Because where do all the top climbers or where do many of the top climbers come from is, you know, Front Range out of Colorado, um, and then and then Salt Lake, and then you have little pockets back east that that have developed more, I would say, recently. But back then, you know, back in the '90s, Red River Gorge was kind of in its infancy. You know, New River Gorge, okay, that was around, but it's it sort of suffers from the same thing that Yosemite does. You're you're either a dirt bag or you're driving like four hours to live anywhere mm-hmm. where there's actually an economy that you can make a living. You know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so Salt Lake has a super strong climbing community, and and even back then, absolutely it did. And um, you know, and then there was stuff happening too. Like it was not, it wasn't static. It was you know things were developing. You know, 
So like um, Little Cottonwood Canyon, for example, like when I moved here in 96, people had been bouldering in Little Cottonwood. I mean, you know, people, I don't know how long people have been bouldering in Little Cottonwood since like the 60s, probably like at the gate buttress. I know that people used to meet at the gate buttress and they would probably scramble around on those boulders and whatnot. And then it evolved and, um, you know, but in the 90s, and mid 90s i would say that is when little cottonwood bouldering was like becoming what it is today right it was like people were looking around and they were like oh like look at this thing you know look at this one look at this one and you know a lot of um sort of the modern classics i think were getting developed uh, in that time period and and I came into that and I was like, this stuff is hard. <laughs> I still think that, you know, so I dabbled a little bit, but it wasn't really like little cottonwood bouldering wasn't what convinced me to live here, but I was seeing it happening. I was like, oh, look at, you know, all these guys are out there and they're finding problems left and right and stuff. And that was super cool. But then also you had places like Ibex and, and Joe's Valley, and those places were kind of just coming online around that same time period as well. So it was really exciting to be somewhere where there was, like, new development, you know. And then, you know, Maple Canyon was was kind of uh, freshly discovered around that time period. I mean, I mean, I remember going to Maple Canyon, and it was, like, pretty much just Box Canyon was anybody was, – was the only thing anybody knew about, you know. Yeah. Um, but it was obvious there was more, right? You just have to look up the road. You're like, well, there's a lot more, you know. Um, so stuff like that, you know, places like the Narrows, uh, you know, just outside of town to the west that were getting developed and stuff. So it was it was exciting because there was, you know, there was all these hard climbs, but it was also like there was just this frenzy of, like, people finding new things and new stuff getting developed. So that was, that was really appealing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, how was it? What was it like um, in terms of sharing information? Since it was such a heavy development time period, and you know, new to town, yeah. what was that? I like? think it was definitely different, right? I mean, so nowadays the landscape with that is is super different because of social media mm-hmm. um, and things like Mountain Project, um, and you know, guidebooks that are just, you know, there's a new guidebook for an area, like, you know, every year there's some new guidebook, even if it's like an area that's, you know, the old guidebook was just fine, you know. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it was different. It was more print media for sure, right? So maybe there were some guidebooks Um, for sure, like the Ruckman guides, um, the early ones, I think had been published, like for American Fork, and that those had like you know, those have like Rock Canyon in it and stuff like that. And then um, American Fork and then the Cottonwoods, like there was the old Ruckman book, Wasatch North. I want to say that that was already published by the time I moved here. So you had some information, you know, um, but new stuff, it was just a lot of word of mouth, I would say, you know, there was nowhere to nowhere. There was no online, <laughs> you know, Um I guess the internet existed, but I don't think climbers were using it like that. Not yet. Yeah. So, yeah, I think a lot of word of mouth and stuff. Um, You know, climbing gyms uh, at that time, I would say, so what used to be um, 
So there was the climbing gym that was called the Body Shop. It was down in Sandy. Um, so that already existed when I moved here, for sure. That was already a, an open business. And so, you know, you, you, would, you would have people gathering there and, and talking and stuff. But it was also such a much smaller community, you know. Mm-hmm. So now it's so interesting. I mean, like, I guess I've been in here. You know, I did the arithmetic. So I've been in Salt Lake since uh, for 26 years, which is longer than I lived even where I grew up. Right. But I still like feel like there's a little asterisk on whether or not I'm from Utah. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm from Utah, asterisk, you know. <laughs> Agree. So, yeah. So I always feel a little guilty uh, when I complain about other people, which I'm prone to do, uh, because, you know, I'm like, oh, am I being a hypocrite? You know, because they're doing what I did. I just happened to do it 26 years ago. You know, which is move here because the mountains brought you here, you know. And so, you know, I I tread lightly when I do that. But, um, you know, at the time when I moved here, it was it was just so everything was just smaller. The community was just so much smaller. So you had your cohort of active Utah locals, you know, and the usual suspects. And then there were just kind of a few of us that were like transplants, you know? And so I think it was like a little bit easier when there's just a few of you, then it's easier to sort of get incorporated in the existing community, you know? And nowadays, like if I go to the climbing gym and I'm, I'm a friendly enough social person and I'll be like, oh, hey, you know, let's, how's that problem or whatever? And then, and then inevitably the person will say like, I just moved here from Wisconsin or, you know, I just moved here from, you know, fill in the blank, you know? <laughs> Indiana or Illinois or wherever, and you're like, oh, great. And they're like, yeah, you know, and then they'll say things like, it's just so crowded. And you're like, yeah, you're the crowd. (laughs) (laughs) It's crowded because of you. You are the crowd. (laughs) Um, You know, but back then it was less of that. So, um, and, and those of us that maybe were transplants here, you know, like, um, like I said, when I moved here, I already knew. I already had friends. Like, I already knew, you know, I'll drop some names. So I already knew Mike Beck. I already knew Boone Speed. I already knew Mike Call. I already knew, did I know Dave Bell? Maybe I knew Dave Bell. Um, like, Lance Bateman. Like, I knew all these guys already. And, you know, they were they were still the active uh, climbers at that time. So when I moved here, it was like, hey, guys, what's going on, you know? And we had met other places, you know, like I, like they had, they had gone to uh, Smith Rocks. So I'd met them at Smith Rocks, you know, Mm. or like we met in Waco tanks or whatever it was. Like we had met other places and now I just happened to be moving to, you know, their hometown for the obvious reason, you know, but I think it was just easier to kind of become part of the community, I guess you would say. It's just the timing of it, I think Mm. more than anything, you know, Mm -hmm. so and just also, you know, I think we touched on this maybe before we started recording is like, you know, when you share, uh, you know, when you're climbers, it's oftentimes you share these things that are outside of climbing and you're like, oh, you did this, bef-, you know, and I did, you know, and it's like, oh, that's something that we have in common, even though it has nothing to do with climbing, you know, but it's like these sort of common paths that bring you to climbing, you know, mm-hmm. and then you know, it's like, you, you hate to be cliche about it, but uh, 
uh, you know, there are those of us that are lifers, you know, (laughs) (laughs) or like my one friend, Justin, he's, he, he, he's on this kick now where he's like, I'm a soul climber, you know, (laughs) I don't climb for grades. I'm a soul climber. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, I get that. And, um, but like, I think that, you know, uh, for me, I, that's how I feel about myself. And I, I think that like some of my oldest friends, like I identified that in them, you know, I was like kindred spirit, you know, like I, I, I don't know that I would have predicted that like 30 years from now we'll be friends and we'll still be going climbing, you know, <laughs> but maybe it was like kind of obvious that that was going to happen, you know? So, but there's a lot of that here in the community in Salt Lake. So people that, you know, well, it's dwindling because age will do that to you. But there's definitely folks that used to, you know, that I met that long ago that are still climbing, mm-hmm. which is amazing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's really neat. Um, what, uh, what are some memorable experiences here, either locally or maybe in Utah, that kind of stand out from when you kind of early, early Salt Lake yeah. Years when you first moved here. Yeah. Um, well, so, like, climbing experiences? Or mount, mount, mountain desert. Mount, yeah. Mountain desert. Yeah. I mean, there's been so many, it's, yeah. hard, it's hard to narrow it down. Um, but, you know, I think that, um, for me, uh, living in Salt Lake, like, it's a little more holistic than just climbing. Because when I when I came, as I mentioned, I dropped out of college when I was 19. And so when I settled here in 96, I was 26 at the time. And I lived here for like two years and was kind of, you know, working at the ski resort, like working at Snowbird, and I was snowboarding and, and climbing and stuff like that. Um, so I got to the age of like 28, and I kind of, you know, just had a deep you know, reckoning with myself was like, okay, what am I going to do? What what am I doing? Right. Like Mm -hmm. climbing is great. I love climbing, but you know, I have a good head on my shoulder, so I probably ought to, you know, think about my future, you know, um, I'm not going to work at the ski area for the rest of my life. I don't want to do that. No, no offense to anybody that does, but it just wasn't something that I was aspiring to. And even the, even in the climbing uh, industry, like I had worked for different climbing companies, but always kind of as, you know, grunt work, you know, manual labor type stuff, um, you know, because I hadn't gone to college. So, you know, obviously I'm not going to design climbing gear, you know, like an engineer would or something like that. So I was like, oh, maybe I should go back to school. So I went back to school. Uh, I started back to school at 28 and uh, I actually went to the community college for two years, which is where I work now. And then I went to the University of Utah and um, ended up majoring in mathematics and then um, did my uh, graduate degree. I did a master's degree in mathematics here at the University of Utah. Um, And then when I finished that, I was able to get the full-time position teaching at the community college. And so the moral of this story, (laughs) the reason why I'm talking about it is because it's it's more holistic, right? Like... Mm -hmm. So I always say, I sort of boil that down. I always just explain to people, like, Salt Lake has treated me well, Mm. is how I explain it. Mm. And, you know, because 
I had all of these great opportunities with education, you know, to, to be able to go back to school at 28. Now, I worked my butt off as well because I, I went I went all in and I took out loans and stuff. And I was like, if I'm going to go back to school, I'm going to do it right, you know. And so I went as full time as I possibly could. And it paid off because I was able to go to graduate school and, you know, now I have have this career. But it's treated me well. Like it's it's been an, a, a nice place for me to settle and you know to have a good life, basically. And part of that is that, and why I'm talking about it is because that good life that you know I have um, you know whatever worked hard to accomplish for myself that includes climbing, right? I haven't had to give that up, and and so you know. Part of like my career, you know, as as a as a teacher, I get summers off if I want. Nowadays, I work in the summer because I have a daughter, and so I don't travel in the summer as much as I used to. But from 2006 until 2015, I think I took every summer off, and I just climbed every summer, just nothing but climbing. And I did a lot of that locally, but I also traveled a bunch too. And, you know, in the meantime, like I have a great partner, her name's Kim and, you know, we bought a house together. And so we have this, you know, we have a little house in Salt Lake and I was able to work and have a good career, but also still climb all the time, you know, here in, here in Utah and then also internationally. And so, I mean, it's been I would say since, you know, since 2006, I mean, you know, pinch me, is it real? Like, it's been, it's been amazing, you know? And what was the question? <laughs> I don't oh, I don't even know. <laughs> anyway, so it's treated me real. Oh, it was memorable experiences. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that, I think that, you know, that's, that's not a specific memorable experience, yeah. but I think that my memorable experiences live in that context. Mm-hmm. And, you know, without that context, I could say like, oh, I went climbing this one time and it was amazing. But I think that context mm-hmm. is is super important, right, mm-hmm. for me personally. Um, because, uh, you know, a lot of that, I, you know, it's, it's my partner, Kim, she works... Um, She's basically a social justice warrior. So, you know, I've learned a lot from her about, you know, privilege and I'm a white man. And yes, there's privilege and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, I also, you know, came from like dropping out of college and, you know, living on my own and, you know, having like $300 in my bank account. And that's it, you know, like so I've I've kind of run the full gamut and a lot of my successes I didn't really have, like, you know, family to fall back on. Like, I didn't really have – I couldn't, like, dial a phone number and be like, could you send me rent money? Like, that was never an option, you know. So everything I did, I had to do on my own, like, financially and just, like, I got to make this work. I got to make this work. I got to make this work. And I think I've done a good job at it. And, and again, part of that is that, you know, for – luck of the draw or you know I can't say that I was like strategic like you know about everything that happened some of it was probably luck but like I've crafted this life where I've been able to you know maintain this climbing lifestyle 
And, and, and because of that, I've gotten to have experience after experience after experience after experience. Like, I can't even list them. You know, mm-hmm. there's just too many. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, been, it's been great for that. And, and now, you know, I mentioned I have a daughter. She's seven. And, um, you know, and my partner, Kim, um, and, you know, we're, we're like still at it. You know, so last Sunday, we well the last couple Sundays we've been doing family climbing day, mm-hmm. and we we go out to Big Cottonwood and I string up some top ropes and my seven year old daughter is out there top roping in Big Cottonwood on Sunday, and on Wednesdays it's Daddy Daughter Climbing Day at the gym, mm-hmm. and I take her to the front and and she, you know she's climbing like a little fiend you know, and um, and so it's like we're still doing it you know, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, and then like yesterday, I went bouldering in Little Cottonwood. You know, um, so yeah, it's 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 been really good to live here. You know, holistically, mm-hmm. like it's given me a lifestyle that mm-hmm. you know I think other people should be jealous of. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been great. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I did have to pick, I, I would say that there there's a couple because I was thinking about this pre talking. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of climbs that stand out to me. So um, one is uh, talking about my family. So um, my first climbing date with uh, Kim was we did Stewart's Ridge mm-hmm. together. Um, that's in Big Cottonwood, and it's a three-pitch, five-six. And it's a classic. It's like old mm-hmm. classic. I looked it up. It was like first done in like the 1940s or something like that. There we know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, dr- I drug her up that, and she barely was a climber at all. So um, she stuck that out. And we still talk about that. And we just like, you know, we just walked by it the other day. Mm-hmm. And and I told my daughter, I was like, hey, this is like where we, you know, where your mom and I, you know, did our first climb together, you know. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty cool. Um, and then another one, like talking about, um, you know, going to school and whatnot and kind of creating that life style for myself. Um, when I when I was in school, because I, I I'm sort of uh, obsessive, whatever it is that I throw myself at. Um, which can be kind of dangerous. It's like, you know, um, I've had my diversions where I was like, oh, now I'm skateboarding or, you know, lately it's been golf. I'm like, now I'm golfing. And it's like, it's a little bit too much. I have to kind of, I have to kind of watch myself sometimes. But when I, when I was in school, it was like all school. Like I, I climbed just enough to maintain a base, Mm. but like, I was definitely not like trying to progress while I was in school. It was like, I'm doing school. Like, that's Mm -hmm. what I'm doing. And when I finished school and I started working and got got a job teaching, and I was like, oh, wow, I get, like, a whole month off for Christmas. I was like, well, I guess I'm going climbing, you know. And I, oh, I have a whole summer off. Like, well, I guess I'm going climbing. And it was like suddenly I had the best of both worlds because I had the stability of having a career and and a, a, a reasonably good paycheck, you know. And also I had a lot of time that I could go climbing. And so coming out of that, I had this first winter where I started going down to the Virgin River Gorge. And I had climbed there before through the years or whatever. But it was the first winter where, like, that was what was going on in my life. Mm -hmm. 
And I was able to just go down there like several different weekends and I projected and, and then sent this climb called Fall of Man, which is like a really long, like over, you know, it's probably like 115 feet or something like that, like 13B, like pre-run out, mm-hmm. like pretty involved, you know. And I did that. And this was like back in 2006. So I did that. And it wasn't my hardest climb. Mm -hmm. I had done harder climbs. I had done climbs of that grade, like, you know, a bunch. But it kind of stood out to me as, like, a a marker. Like, like Mm. this can can be what I do now. Mm. You know, like, I've got... I did all the hard work Mm. to get this stability, like... You know, I'm I'm now rooted in this place. You know, I have a career, I have a community, and and I can do this. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. and so that climb stood out in my mind, and and also it was a little bit like, oh okay, like you know, because having come out of graduate school, not really climbing very much, like oh I can still climb five thirteens if I just put my mind to it. You know, mm-hmm. and I was like, okay, it's it's game on. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> let's see what we can do with this, you know. Yeah. And so that one really stood out. And um, and I love that place. I know it's like tangentially, you know, it's technically not part of Utah, but um, I love climbing in southern Utah. And I've climbed down there a ton, mm-hmm. like in the St. George area. We, we go down, uh, we, we rent a place like every Christmas, mm-hmm. my family and I. We've been doing it like for like seven years now since my daughter was born, maybe even before. We'll just do like an Airbnb and we go down and spend like, you know, the the Christmas break or whatever. Mm-hmm. We just love it down there. In the winter, I would <laughs> be down there in the summer. Um, but then I guess another one that I would mention, and it's uh, it, it was in Maple Canyon, um, and I've climbed in Maple Canyon quite a lot. Because um, mostly, I guess if I had to say, I'm probably like. 70 30 like sport climbing bouldering like i'm primarily a sport climber um but i i love bouldering too i just sport climb more i I think you just sort of gravitate towards maybe what you're better at something like that so but anyway i caught it's it's this this one's like two prong because um and similar similar to what I was just describing with Fall of Man, I started climbing in Maple Canyon in the early 2000s there, 2006, 2007. And it was right around that time that the pipe dream was really starting to, like, come into its own. Like, some of those roots had just barely been put in. And I love steep climbing. And so I started going there, and I was like, are you kidding me? And it wasn't crowded, you know, like nobody knew about it, you know. I mean, people knew about it, but it wasn't like it is these days where it's like kind of overrun. So it wasn't very crowded, and there's all these just just huge, massive roots, you know. And like Tom Adams was uh, had done a lot of the uh, – had put in some of the first ascents, and some other folks had put in first ascents and stuff. So there were hard roots to do. And I just started climbing there a bunch. And I was like, this is amazing. You know, it's this huge cave with these giant overhanging roots. Like, like okay, I'll do that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I kind of worked my way through those. But, like, in 2011, I did uh, Pipe Dream, the route, which is a 14A. And that was my first of that grade. Mm-hmm. And so if you do the arithmetic... 
I was 41 at the time, so, like, not young. <laughs> so a bit of a late bloomer. But, you know, that's that crag is, like, notorious for old people climbing there, so it makes sense, you know. Um, but, yeah, so I did that, and then, which was which was exciting for me, you know. It's, a, it's an amazing route. Um, and then, you know, just, like, taking that grade was mm-hmm. meaningful, you know, for the obvious reasons. Um, but the the sort of uh, icing on the cake to that story is that while I was climbing there so much and working on that route, I was kind of looking around in the cave and I was noticing that if you know the Pipe Dream Cave, there's kind of um, two main finishes that, that a lot of the variations go to. So there's what people call the T-Rex finish. So T-Rex is one of the roots. So there's the T-Rex finish, which is the big left-hand finish. It goes way out the big horizontal stuff. And then there's um, like the Great Feast finish or, or like, um, you know, Eulogy, Don't Mess With Texas, Great Feast. They all go into the other finish. There's a couple new other variations these days. But those are kind of the two main finishes. And to access the T-Rex finish, like, the easiest way to do that would be to do, like, Mexican Rodeo or something like that, which climbs up the bottom of the Diggler. You either do Diggler or Confianza, and then you bust out into that T-Rex finish. And those are, like, 13D. And, you know, the problem with the Pipe Dream is a lot of the routes, they share starts and they share finishes, so everything kind of bottlenecks. And so I was experiencing that while I was working, you know, Pipe Dream and, and other things as well. I'd already experienced it. But so I was looking around and I was like, oh, man, it, just, it totally looks like if you added a couple of bolts, you could start on this other line called Wake and Bake. So climb up the bottom of Wake and Bake. And then there's a, an obvious weakness that would access you to the T-Rex finish. And so instead of doing 13B to the T-Rex finish, you could do what amounts to like 12B to the T-Rex finish. And so after I did Pipe Dream, I borrowed a drill and went out there and I, I bolted this variation. So it was just really linking two things that already existed. So I only added a couple of bolts. Um, and so I added those bolts and then... I left it, and someone else climbed it. In fact, I think Todd Perkins, who's a well-known uh, Southern Utah climber, um, I think he actually nabbed the, you know, the t- the quote-unquote first ascent. But it's a it's a link up, you know, um, which I didn't care about. And, and and in fact, I said if anybody was ever going to steal my first ascent, like let it be Todd Perkins because he's done so many first ascents. Like he's he's due to just steal someone else's. <laughs> And uh, But anyway, that route became Rodeo Clown, which is a 13B, which I don't even climb at the Pipe Dream but I was anymore these days. But I was talking to somebody, and they were like, everybody does Rodeo Clown. Like, it's one of the most popular routes up there now uh, because it's sort of the sweet spot for the grade and also because it, it turned it into, like, this independent line. Mm-hmm. And uh, so... You know, that was like a little contribution that I got to leave at that crag. And then actually the tail end of that story is before I got to climb that route, I got really a bad injury that required a surgery. And it was like I wasn't sure how that was going to all pan out. And 
after I recovered from that injury and from that surgery, I went back and I climbed Rodeo Clown. Mm. It was my first 513 post-surgery that I had done. So I finally did do the route. Um, but yeah, so that was that was a good one. I was pretty happy to contribute in that way, you know, mm-hmm. to add a route to the pipe dream that way. So, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> so those are a couple yeah. that stand out. I mean, That's I thought about great. it. You know? Yeah. Um, so. What, besides knowing that you would have summers off yeah. and holiday break, yeah. what, what drew you to becoming a professor Oh, and teaching math, oh. especially math? Yeah, right? Yeah, why? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I ask myself that every day. <laughs> why did I do this? Um, I did not know that I... So when I was uh, in high school, I was convinced I love reading. And I don't read as much fiction as I used to, but I've read, like, volumes of fiction, you know. I sort of feel like I should at least have, like, an honorary English degree, <laughs> you know. Anyway, um, I thought I was going to be an English major, but I was I was always, like, reasonably good at math, like, kind of, you know, I was basically, like, a year ahead of my grade level for math, like, through high school. It's, that's not uncommon, you know, mm-hmm. but I wasn't really into pursuing it at all, and um, when... It was actually, I mentioned I was doing that Jansport wall tour. Mm -hmm. So I would be in the mall and I would go to the bookstore, which is, I just love haunting bookstores, you know. I'll just go to a bookstore and just walk around for like an hour, you know, no problem. (laughs) Or a library. Uh And, uh, (laughs) And so I was in the bookstore at some random mall. And I don't know how the thought even got into my mind, but I was like, I was like, why do people think Einstein is, like, a genius? Like, like, what did he do that everybody thinks... I knew he was a physicist, obviously. I knew E equals MC squared, but I was like, really, what did he do? Like, why is he... Why do we hold him up on a pedestal as being a genius? And so that thought was in my head. I don't know where it came from. And I'm in the bookstore, and I see A Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking. And it, I think it had just come out, or maybe it was, like, just in paperback or something like that. And so I bought a copy, and because I read the back of the, the, you know, the back cover, and I was like, well, this should explain it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and so I just devoured that book and was kind of blown away. And, you know, like I said, I had been all right at math, and I would had physics in high school or whatever, but I just wasn't, like, I was thinking I was going to go in this other direction, you know? And so, but when I read that, I was like, this is better than fiction. Like, this is amazing because it's real and it's just like mind-blowing stuff, you know. And so that got me interested in in physics. And so I started reading more popular books, like that you would just buy at the bookstore, about physics. Mm -hmm. And um, so when I started back to school, I had that in my mind Mm -hmm. that I was going to you know, do something in the sciences. And I wasn't sure, like, I thought maybe I would do something in the sciences. You know, I've kind of dabbled with the idea, like, probably so many people do, you know, like, should I go into some sort of medical field or something like that? Like, I didn't know, you know, exactly. But once I started taking classes and I, you know, I was just lining them up, like, because, you know, the, the sort of first grouping of classes that you would take for any of those, like if you were going to be an engineer or a physicist or whatever, it's, you know, it's math, it's physics, it's chemistry, you know, it's your biology, like just get all those out of the way. 
So I was doing all of those. And I was just more drawn to math. And I think actually what it was, like kind of humorously, was like, I just don't like labs. So, like, if I had a physics lab, I was like, ugh, this is pain, you know? Or, like, a chemistry lab, I'm like, ugh, this kind of smells in here, you know? <laughs> now my clothes smell. like. Mm-hmm. But math, it's a little bit like climbing in how it, it just is distilled down. You know, I mean, climbing is like that, isn't it? Like, it's, it's very abstract. It's very distilled down. It's you interacting with something that just exists in nature. You don't have, you don't need, apart from some basic gear, you don't need like a bunch of extraneous, you know, man-made stuff, right? Like it's not like mountain biking. It's not like even like skiing. Like skiing is, you know, you have your bindings you got to deal with and stuff. I mean, there's gear. Don't get me wrong. But like at the end of the day, the gear should just be background noise if you're free climbing not free soloing, free climbing, mm-hmm. right? Because the gear is just there just in case. So otherwise, it's just you and the medium. And math is like that, but even more abstract because they're, like the medium itself is just purely mental. Mm-hmm. And so as soon as I started viewing it that way, I was like, doing math is like bouldering, but without the boulder. you know and I was like that's amazing and and so as a student I just got I just kept like going in that direction I started working as a math tutor and so I was helping other people and that really gave me this strong foundation it wasn't just like what I was studying I was also helping people that were doing the prerequisite material so I got really good like a really good foundation And I got to this point in my own academics where I had to make the decision. You know, it was like basically like junior year or something like that. And I thought maybe I was going to do um, like the um, uh, public. I don't know what you call it. It's like the education major. Mm -hmm. Right. So you would you would get the endorsement to teach. You would do like you could do math and physics as a combination and you get the endorsement. You could teach public school. And so I, I, I took a couple of the classes to go in that direction, like a couple of the intro education classes, and I was like, ugh, ugh, like, ugh, ugh. <laughs> I'm not sure about that stuff, you know. And um, and then in the meantime, I was still taking like legit math classes, and I had a couple of math professors that you know I got to know, and and um, and they actually. Um, I, I didn't even uh, solicit it, but they it was here at the U, and they had um, these two professors. One of them was in charge of uh, giving out some scholarships, I guess, and at least this is what they told me. And um, they had a scholarship that nobody had applied for, and it, it was it wasn't like huge. I think it was like a thousand dollars, or maybe it was two thousand, like a thousand for each semester, or something like that. And nobody had applied for it. It was like a scholarship that an alumni had donated the money. So they had this money, and this one professor says to this other professor, we need to give this money away. Do you have any students that you would recommend? And this professor said, yeah, there's this guy in my class. His name's Ron. We should give it to him. And coincidentally, I was taking class from the other guy as well. So the two of them were like, hey, we know him. 
let's give him the scholarship. So they just like called me into the office and they're like, we're giving you a scholarship. And I was like, okay, like, that's awesome. You know? And they're like, and we think you should be a math major. And I was like, I could do that. And they're like, and we think you should go to graduate school. And I was like, game on, let's go. (laughs) (laughs) You know? So it was like that push from those two guys that, that I was like, I, I committed to, to, doing the full math major. And then I wasn't really too concerned at that point. I was like, well, I'm going all in with this and we'll just see where it leads, you know? And I always kind of knew that teaching would be something that you could fall back on. And, and, um, you know, so I did the master's degree and I was like, I think I'm done with academics because it had been, you know, seven years of straight school by the time I finished my master's and I was just kind of toast. And doing a PhD in math is hard. You know, climbing 14A is easy compared to doing a PhD in math. Mm. So I was like, I'm done. And, um, but yeah, I was lucky because it's pretty competitive to get a full-time position teaching at, even at a community college. Uh, Mm -hmm. When I got the job, you know, there were probably 30-some applicants for my position that I got. And, um, you know, again, you know, the stars kind of aligned and and it worked out. Um, but nowadays I laugh and I think to myself, like, I probably, if I, if I was me, like, if it was now, like, I wouldn't get the job. Mm-hmm. It's that competitive these mm-hmm. days. So, mm-hmm. yeah, the stars just aligned. <laughs> but I like teaching. Um, and, you know, uh, I'm sort of personable. Like, I'm maybe an atypical math teacher because I don't know. I don't know. Maybe not. There's some, you know. There's you, you get a you get a good spectrum of math teachers, different different types of folks. Mm-hmm. Um, I am relaxed with my students, not overly so though. I don't I don't try to like you know be like let's be friends. Like I don't need friends. <laughs> I have friends. <laughs> I, I'm not looking for new friends. I have friends. and uh, But I'm relaxed with them, and I treat them like adults. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I treat them with respect. And, and you know, the community college, it, it treated me well at, at the time that I went there. And, um, you know, I think it's uh, it's a mixed bag. But, like, you know, I have a ton of empathy for my students because a lot of them their plates are really full you know I always say like life is hard you know and even when I'm teaching uh, an easier math class it's it's like climbing it is a lot I, I metaphor with climbing all the time because you know um, throwing around big numbers earlier or whatever but like five nine is hard you know mm-hmm. There is no doubt in my mind. Like, I, I never, ever, ever say it's just 5'9". Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, maybe. It depends on who I'm talking to. <laughs> but you know what I mean. It's like, it's like uh, rock climbing is inherently difficult. It doesn't matter what the grade is. It's inherently difficult. We're at the point now with climbing and with climbing gyms where we're losing touch of that because... You have people like my daughter who's growing up in a climbing gym and, you know, she's going to just like, broop, 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 you know, by the time she's in middle school, she'll probably be climbing 512. So she's going to have zero perspective. But 5'9", 
on real rock in little cottonwood, in big cottonwood, in Yosemite, wherever, like though that's that's a hard thing. It's not for everybody. You know, getting getting to the climb can be difficult. Just walking up the trail can be a challenge for 95% of the general population, mm-hmm. you know. And math is very much the same way. So, like, when I have students, they'll say, uh, I hear them say, like, oh, I'm only at the community college. I'm like, drop the only. Like, you're at the community college. Like, congratulate yourself because it is, you are doing something that is a challenge. I'm only taking math 10-10. Drop the only, dude. Math 10-10 is hard. It is a ton of work. And it like you're gonna have to work your butt off, and you're learning things that you have no context for. It's not like you're doing it. You know, when you sit down to dinner with your family, you're not all talking about algebra. Like, you know what I mean? When you go to the store, you're not doing algebra. Like, it is something totally going to be foreign and difficult. And so, you know, give yourself the credit for the hard work that you're putting in. And it's it's those kinds of things. Like, you know, in, in terms of like. You know, like uh, climbing and, you know, giving back, for example. I sometimes think like, okay, how am I giving back? What what has climbing given me and and what can I give back? And I really, again, like holistically, I, I think about the stuff that I've learned from climbing and I try to tell my students that stuff all the time. But I don't frame it in terms of climbing because I don't want to make it about myself. But like oftentimes, like I'm talking right now, it's like, what is he talking about? Is he talking about math or is he talking about climbing? Because it's like, you know, one of the things about math is that you abstract things and you go, oh, this idea over here and this idea over here, they seem totally different. But if you take the view from 10,000 feet, they're actually the same. And that's like with climbing and, and with academics, like kids that are going to school and kids that are studying math and stuff, kids, college students, you know, um, uh, to me, it's, it's very much the same. It's very much the same. Mm-hmm. And the effort, the hard work, the failure, you know, the sweat, the tears, the setbacks, like, it's all the same. Mm-hmm. So I, I try to let them know, like, hey, it, this is hard. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be easy for you, but do your best, you know. Mm-hmm. So, How did, um, I've talked to a few professors, how did the uh, pandemic impact oh your teaching and, like, what... What have you kept that you've learned or what have you dropped as a result of that wrecking ball? (laughs) Well, so we, when the pandemic first hit, you know, everything went online and we call it, I don't know what, I don't know what everybody else calls it these days, but I've been calling it broadcast classes. That's, that's Mm -hmm. kind of what we were first calling it. I think now maybe there's a new term for it, but it's like either teaching through Zoom or originally we were using WebEx. Now I do everything on Zoom, right? But it's it's online, but it's synchronous. So I log on and the students log on all at the same time. And I started doing that in March of 2020 out of necessity. They were like, everything needs to go online. And I didn't teach online classes all my classes were in person, so I was like, okay, what do you do? How do you, you know, I had to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's problem solving, and you just look and say, well, what are the tools? How do I use these tools? And, like, let's make this work, you know? 
and we still have classes. I'm teaching two classes this semester that are broadcast style because they're still around because the demand for those style of class hasn't hasn't gone away. People still sign up for them. And it's good. I think it's good that um, we have them as an option. And, um, you know, not everybody's necessarily taking them at this point because of COVID or because of, like, they don't want to get exposed to COVID or something like that. That's not the only reason that people take these classes. I think they're taking them uh, because of the convenience factor, because they don't have to drive 30 minutes to go to find a spot to park on campus and walk up three flights of stairs and come sit and listen to me for 50 minutes when they can just like click and do it from home, you know? And, uh, so that's still ongoing. And, um, you know, at this point, I mean, what is it now since, uh, 2020? So it's, it's, uh, you know, almost going on three, well, What's the arithmetic there? <laughs> March 2020, March 2021, March 2022. That's two years. Yeah. So oh, it's yeah. two and a half years yeah. that I've been doing this. So I'm like kind of dialed in mm-hmm. with that method of teaching. Um, in fact, I did it this morning, mm-hmm. you know. But I go to my office. Mm-hmm. I put on my headset. I've got my little microphone. I've got two screens. I've got PowerPoints. I do. I write in real time. It's not. It's not all just slides. I have all, everything prepped, but then I write on it in real time. And it all gets recorded. They can watch the recording later in case they miss the class and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So we're still doing that. And but I'm also teaching in person. And um, you know, it's it's things don't live in a vacuum. So there is like, oh well, this this worked over here, and why doesn't it work over here? And you know, so like some of the stuff that I do on in Canvas, uh, like for a broadcast class, I've adopted even for my in person class because it's just like kind of effic- more efficient than you know printing something out or you know stuff like that. So, uh, but I, I think I was doing a fair amount of that prior anyway. Um, but yeah, it's it's crazy mm-hmm. that that aspect for sure. I don't I don't I, I'm ready for it to go away. The broadcast style classes, mm-hmm. I won't miss it if I don't have to do it anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't mind it terribly, but I won't miss it. Mm-hmm. So if it goes away, we'll see. Yeah, yeah, It'll, it's going to be interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, same same up here. Yeah. People are doing that style of oh, classes yeah. up here. Yeah. yeah, online versus in person, hybrid, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and the I cat's ta- out of the bag. I know. We can be in sweatpants and well, still you know, work. <laughs> you know, um it, it I made a little prediction. I don't. Hopefully, it doesn't come true. But like, I teach at the South City campus. It's the old building on State Street, mm-hmm. about Seventeenth South. Between it's just south of Seventeenth South. Mm-hmm. Um, we have multiple campuses throughout the valley, but that's where my office is, and that's where my classes are, in-person classes. But while COVID was going on, I mean, I would go in there, and I was. I felt like I was the only. I was like, I'm a ghost. Like the building is empty. You know. And uh, I was thinking to myself, I was like, if if the legislators figure out 
that we don't need this building mm. to to do what we do because everything can just be on Zoom. <laughs> like buildings are expensive, facilities are expensive. You know, if you want to cut costs, get rid of the building. You know, and I'm like, they're probably going to figure that out. And it's going to be super sad <laughs> because I like buildings. Mm-hmm. You know, I like to have a physical space. I don't want to be, mm-hmm. you know, just a voice on the computer. But <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Um, so you mentioned earlier, um, like Ibex and yeah, uh, St. George, yeah, and other areas, yeah. Um, here, I can pause. Oh, we're good. No, okay. that's good. Yeah. Okay. Um, 40 some minutes. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, kind of out, climbing outside of the Wasatch. Yes. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? That's yeah. kind of the allure of being in Salt Lake. Yeah, it is. It really is. Um, you know, so I... I, did, I explained to people, because as I mentioned, I have like climbed internationally quite a bit as well, um, in France and in Spain and things like that. And it's really interesting on when I go on those trips and I tell people I'm from Utah, um, you know, because they know you're American and they know, where are you from? I say, I'm from Utah. And they all say, oh, Indian Creek, mm-hmm. you know, that's what everybody knows. And I'm like, actually, I've never been to Indian Creek and you know it's kind of shameful you know but it's just not my um, style of climbing that I would be drawn to you know um, so I just haven't done it and um, but what I then the follow up is I explain to people I'm like it's an amazing place like that there's you know Indian Creek is famous and you know I can understand why Europeans would you know at least visually because they don't have stuff like that mm-hmm. but then I explain to them like in Salt Lake you know there's climbing out the back door, you know, in the in the Wasatch. But then, if you just start drawing like concentric circles around the city, you know, go out and within an hour, go out within two hours, go out within three hours or four hours, and that there is so much climbing, um, you know, that it's just it's just unbelievable. It's really unbelievable, and um, you know, I think. These days, um, I'm not I'm not traveling as much like I used to because I just don't have the time uh, with having a with having a seven year old at home and stuff like that. You know, it's it's a lot to ask the whole family to pack up and drive for four hours so that I can do some rock climb. You know, so I just don't do that. You know, um, try to find balance in other ways. But before being a parent, you know, I would do that. I would I would go for the weekend to St. George, you know, I just wouldn't even think about it. I just jump in the car and go Friday night, you know, and drive home on Sunday and just climb for two days down there. Um, but yeah, in every direction, I think, you know, to the North there's a uh, city of rocks, which is not in Utah, but it's not that far over the border. And it's amazing. Um, a little further North in Wyoming, you've got Lander, which is, you know, four hours, four and a half hours. So it's not that far. You know, people in other parts of the country have to drive that far to just go climbing at all, you know. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I've done a lot of trips to those two places. Um, To the west, you've got the Stansberries. So there's not a lot of climbing there, but it's actually, like, pretty close. You can get there in, like, an hour. Mm -hmm. And um, during COVID, I actually climbed out there quite a bit Mm because there's this... Uh, cool little bouldering cave that I started climbing in out there. 
Um, so I spent a bunch of time out there by myself because I could just go by myself. Uh, but but uh, and then further west than that, out in the West Desert, there's a whole bunch. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Pop Tire, Pop Tire. You've got Ibex. You know, Maple technically is not in the Wasatch, but it's pretty darn close to the Wasatch. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, yeah, Ibex. I haven't been to Ibex for years now. Um, but it's an amazing little zone out there. Joe's Valley. I mean, people love Joe's Valley, you know. And I, I, I haven't spent that much time in Joe's Valley. I definitely have climbed there um, through the years, but um, it's a little more sporadic. And part of that is, um, you know, when I when I go bouldering, I tend to like not hold back and I just end up kind of getting just obliterated like so I'm kind of a day on day off kind of boulderer you know it's hard to boulder two days in a row and so it's a long drive for a day trip to go to Joe's you know so I've done it a, a bunch but after a while you're like that's a kind of a big day trip so um, but the southern Utah I guess other than the local areas here in the north I would say you know like American Fork, um, like Little and Big, obviously I've climbed there a bunch. American Fork, a ton, super, climbed there a lot. Um, Maple Canyon, a lot, a lot, a lot. And um, and then Southern Utah, a lot, a lot, a lot. So in and, and Southern Utah, you know, the kind of classic areas. So like um, the Welcome Springs area, which is like uh, the Cathedral and the Wailing Wall, which is kind of one big area. Um, the VRG, um, and then all, all of those different satellite areas. And, and there's a lot of, like, funny little scrappy areas down there, like uh, the Chuckawalla Wall. Like, that's a great, like, I, I love a day at the Chuckawalla in the middle of the winter, like, when it's super cold and you're, like, climbing in a T-shirt on the Chuckawalla. It's, like, it's great, you know, and it's right in town. <laughs> so, and Moe's Valley is super fun. That's a nice little spot down there. Um yeah, I've I've probably bouldered in Moe's Valley maybe more than I've bouldered in Joe's Valley mm-hmm. just because we go down there mm-hmm. in the winter, you know. Mm-hmm. So, but and then I've logged hours and hours and hours at the VRG. A lot of VRG. Mm-hmm. Cuz the climbing there it's, you know, the environment, everybody everybody uh uh nobody loves the environment there because the freeway is right there or whatever. Um and it doesn't bother me if I'm being honest <laughs> because the climbing is so good. I'm just uh-huh. like, whatever, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, yeah, the, the roots there are mm-hmm. amazing. And I, I've, I've, they're not gimmies either. Mm-hmm. Like every route I've done there, I've had to work hard to do. Um, and so, you know, t- I, you know, one of my memorable ones was, you know, mm-hmm. I mentioned the fall man, but there's other ones that, mm-hmm. you know, I've had to work hard for there. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, top of my list of favorite routes for sure. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, definitely. Um, how do you balance your climbing, personal life, teaching? Yeah. Or attempt to? Yeah. <laughs> you know... Um, as a lifer. <laughs> as a lifer, I know. Uh, well, you know, it's interesting. Like, I, I mentioned how I kind of go all in with stuff. And um, so I have found some balance for sure. And... But, you know, just to kind of give you a little side story in regard to that, when my daughter was born, 
Um, you know, having a newborn, it's a bit of a, 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 a kick in the, in the butt, you know, like it was pretty hard and she wasn't sleeping well and stuff like that. So it was pretty hard on us. And, uh, I had been climbing quite a lot right before she was born and like was like, you know, in really good shape and stuff. And, and she was born and then I was like, wow, this is really hard. And, um, it was, I was like, what am I going to do? Am I going to just like go to the climbing gym? Like, is that what I have to do is like only like, that's all I had time for because Mm -hmm. with this new, you know, working and with a newborn and stuff. And I was like, I don't mind going to the climbing gym as a, as a means to an end. Like I'll go to the gym happily on a Wednesday afternoon if I know I'm going outside on Saturday, you know, Mm -hmm. But if I'm going to the climbing gym on Wednesday and then again to the climbing gym on Saturday, then I'm not going to the climbing gym. <laughs> and so I quit climbing for two years. I like cold turkey quit climbing, but I started skateboarding. And so it was when my daughter was born and because and, you can just go skateboarding. It's just like going to the climbing gym. You know, you just go to the skate park instead of the gym. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I started doing that just to kind of get through those couple of years. Mm-hmm. where it was really hard having a newborn. Um, but now, you know, um, we just go to the gym, and I just try to get outside at least once a week. Um, and, you know, there's there's if I miss a day, I don't lose my mind over it. I mean, I'm, I'm not a crazy person. And, uh, you know, I think that balance is super important for me. And, you know, um, you know the quality of life of my family is important for me as well and so I I can't as important as climbing is to me still I don't prioritize it over the quality of life of my family so Mm -hmm. if there's a birthday or an event or whatever it is it's like I'm not going climbing and I I'm not gonna cry about it you know Mm -hmm. because as I already said like I've had a whole life of climbing you know so a climb can wait you know if, if, if there's if there's something else that has to happen but thankfully 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 my partner Kim um, who I've been with for like 20 years now or more I can't remember exactly uh, she doesn't know either so it's okay um, <laughs> <laughs> um, she just understands that you know climbing is part of who I am and she just knows that it keeps me sane and keeps me happy and she's just always been really supportive and she goes climbing with me sometimes and she goes like and climbs at the gym by herself sometimes but it's not a priority for her and that's okay um and but she's just you know she's just open to me getting out and you know we sort of have struck this balance where instead of doing the thing where, you know, I drag my family to the crag, you know, and set my poor kid up at the base with her iPad watching cartoons while I fall off my project, like, we just don't do that. Mm-hmm. And if we go climbing as a family, then that's that's what we do. And it's like I'm putting ropes up for them. And I, I, it's like not even a climbing day for me. It's like a rest day. And then the trade-off of that is when I do go climbing, I just go with my friends mm-hmm. and I don't drag them out. They go, they go swimming or they, you know, go have a play date or whatever. And then I go climbing with some friends. But in order to make that work, it has influence where I go climbing. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot less 
weekends in southern Utah. Like, I don't do that as much anymore. Um, and, you know, like a big day trip, like if I'm going, you know, like I don't go to Ibex. I don't go to Joe's for the day because those are like 14-hour days minimally, you know, because you're looking at two hours in the car either way and then plus the day of, you know, the day of climbing. So it's a lot more. I'm taking more advantage of like going bouldering in Little Cottonwood or going climbing in American Fork. Um, I was getting some days in Maple over the summer. You know, one day a week I'd go down to Maple, something like that. Um, and that's a big day. But in the summer, you know, it's like days are a little bit longer and the schedule is a little more relaxed. So mm-hmm. we were able to make that work as well, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's a little give and take. I would say that we're lucky we're making it work. And I can see where it could be hard for people. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think it would work for everybody. You know, you have to have the right mm-hmm. combination. So, but also, you know, I'm flexible and my partner Kim knows that I'm flexible, you know, and so she can be flexible knowing that I'm going to be flexible and then we just make it work, you know, Mm -hmm. so. What's the biggest challenge you see facing the climbing community? And that can be, you can keep it local or you can go just in general. Yeah. You know, I dwelled on that. Uh, you can have more than one. Prior. <laughs> well, there's like a long, I mean, there's just a laundry list, you know. And, um, you know, I, I was it was I was walking my dog earlier and I was like, what is what is the biggest problem? Like, what is that, you know? And, and there's some obvious ones. And, you know, but it's interesting, isn't it? Because, um, you know, there's so many big problems in the world right now that, you know, me complaining about, oh, the crags are really crowded. Like, it seems so trite, actually, you know, because I was like, that's a problem. And then I was like, Mm. yeah, but like, there's Ukraine and, you know, there's inflation and there's COVID and like, you know, I'm just like, the crags are crowded. (laughs) (laughs) But the crags are crowded, you know, so it it is an issue, you know, and and it's, it kind of goes, uh, you know, I have this sort of philosophy that, like, everybody's got problems. It's just, you know, there's, like, a spectrum of problems. And so some people are lucky and their problems aren't that bad. And other people are unlucky and their problems are really horrible. But everybody's got problems and you have to, like, deal with your own problems. So the climbing community, you know, it's got some issues. And, yes, it's not world hunger. And, you know, no, it's not, you know, getting bombed by Russia. But, you know, there's there's issues. And we want to make sure that... You know, you keep them in check and 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 work on things. You know, so I I think since we're talking about history and and you know my own personal journey through all of this and whatnot, like definitely overcrowding has has become an issue. You know, and I I think that it can I think that it can be fine. I think there's room for everybody, but I think what you have to worry about as a community is. Um, you know, that that we're oftentimes in environments that, you know, can be fragile. And not everybody is, is going into these environments with that thought in, in their mind. Like, how do I, how do I keep this at a, at a low impact, you know? Um, whether that's, like, staying on the trails or, like, you know excuse the crassness but like not pooping in a bush at the base of the cliff 
right? Because people do that. It's it's really horrible that you know. It's like, what are people thinking? You can't even can't even wrap your mind around that stuff, you know. Okay, leaving garbage at the crag, like that's not the worst thing that ever happened because somebody else can come in and pick it up and then it's fine. But like, you know, don't make a big don't make a big mess, you know that kind of thing. But I think that. Um, you know, so there's the environmental impact that you would see with overcrowding. There can be that could lead to issues in terms of land management. You know, when you have, um, you know, 30 people going to the same cliff and they're everybody drove themselves. So now you've got 30 cars in some fragile little dirt parking lot or, you know, clogging up some dirt road and and the land managers are going to be like, what are you climbers doing? You know, like you're making a, uh, you know, you're making a mess of this place or you're like tearing it up or whatever. So there's stuff like that that you have to worry about. And I think, you know, it's, it's, uh, I don't think that these are obviously issues that other people would be thinking about. And, you know, I think that just uh, education and just outreach and just leading by example you know, those are those are those are things that we should all be doing. And um, you know, it, it's tricky, isn't it? Because you have you have these climbing gyms that are just churning out new climbers, for better or worse. But climbing gyms are businesses, private businesses. So they don't really have any responsibility or any gain in trying to educate the people that they are, you know, equipping, you know, quote unquote, equipping to, to go climbing, not literally equipping, but you know what I mean? So, so then where does the responsibility land, you know, and, and how is the, how are those ideas passed on? You know, so we were talking about mentors and as a young climber, like, I would see older climbers and, you know, you would say, like, oh, do this or don't do that. Like, don't, you know, don't be an idiot. Like, stay on the trail, <laughs> you know, <laughs> whatever it is. But, like, where does that happen now, you know? And as an older climber, I mean, I've had, you know, several cases, several incidents where I would say to somebody, like, hey, you know, that's probably not a good idea or, you know, maybe you could do that some 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 different way or something like that but you can't be everywhere all at once and and it literally feels like a tidal wave of new people coming in and I don't think you know there's enough old climbers and some of us are too grouchy you know to convey the messages in a positive and constructive way you know we just sound like old grouches you know Um, so I think I think that's I think that's tricky you know and you know, one of the things about climbing that is appealing to people is, or at least to my generation, is that it's, it isn't regulated. There aren't rules. There isn't an over-governing body to make sure that you're not, you know, violating some rule or whatever, right? It's, it's like self, self-policed. I don't know if that works when there's thousands of new people. Like, how do you, how do, you do that, you know? So we'll see. We'll see what happens, uh, you know. And um, I don't think that you can turn back the wave of new climbers. And just there's more and more publicity with, you know, uh, Oscar-winning movies and and Olympic events and things like that. So, you know, it's only going to get more popular. Um, 
and and maybe more crowded i don't know you know and then there's there's other issues that for me personally like i maybe worry about it like about my daughter uh, you know because she's she's seven and i want her to climb and you know if she wants to i'm not a little league dad you know but if she wants and she does she likes it so you know we go to the gym and you know there's the the teams the rec teams and stuff uh that where they 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 groom the kids to do competitions you know and i'm like okay is that what she's gonna do like is that does that seem like a, a a good way for a kid to get into climbing to like turn it into all about competitions so that's going to be her paradigm for this is like i've got to train really hard to win some competition and all the weird stuff that comes with that like because now it's like you know it's like a like a team sport or you know and then and then it's like there's all the weird cattiness you could imagine going along with that you know and then all of the weird stuff you have to worry about with um, young girls in particular having eating disorders and stuff. And I'm like, maybe I don't want her to ever do a climbing competition because I don't want her to have to worry about whether she should have a rice cake or something, you know, like eat. You know, I'm always trying to feed her. Eat. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So there's like that weird component that... I think that we're aware of these things more as a community. There's been some good stuff that's happened, like some filmmakers that have made, you know, some some videos about these issues and stuff. So we're talking about it and people are aware of it. And so hopefully it, it can be positive, but there's always going to be a dark underbelly, you know. And it's not just climbing. It's just human nature that there's going to be these dark underbellies. So I think we just have to watch out for that kind of stuff and you know, watch out for each other and, 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 you know, make sure that, you know, you keep it positive. Like you should, the, the takeaway should be net positive, you know, for anybody. So Mm -hmm. what do you think? (laughs) (laughs) Not my oral history. (laughs) Uh, What impact do you hope to have on the climbing community? Well, um, so I, you know, it's kind of cliche, I guess, if I'm being self-critical about it, but, you know, it's almost like a bumper sticker, but uh, there's this quote that I just love, and I think it's, I should know who it is if I'm saying I love it, but it's, I believe it was Gandhi, and, you know, he said something to the effect of, you know, be the change that you want to see in the world. And I always just took that to heart, so whether it's about climbing or anything, you know, just like interpersonal relationships, you know, and, you know, or like even if something as silly as like, well, I'm going to recycle, you know what I mean? It's like that kind of thing, like be the change that you want to see in the world. Like if you want to see the world change, like you gotta, you gotta, you gotta do it yourself to some degree. I'm not, I'm also a little bit of a realist, you know, and it's like, you also have to live your life. And, you know, at the end of the day, you have to have gotten out of bed and gone to work. And, you know, there's only so many hours in the day, but you know, I think that as as far as with climbing goes, you know, I, I, I can't make any claims. I, I'm not in it, like, to help anybody else. I'm not in it to, you know, have my name in a guidebook or for people to talk about some climb that I did or whatever. Um, for me, climbing has always been 
you know, immensely personal and, like, admittedly somewhat escapist, you know. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a, I always say that it saved my life, you know, and because I am somewhat uh, obsessive about things and if you're going to be obsessive about something, like climbing is a pretty darn good thing to be obsessive about because it, for the most part, you know, it promotes like uh, a, a healthy lifestyle, you know. I mean, there are climbers that have had issues with substance abuse, absolutely. But for the most part, like if you want to climb, you know, you're, you're going you're gonna to eat well, you know, you're going to try to live healthy, right? And so for me, that, that has been invaluable in terms of that. And, um, you know, it gives, gives you a little purpose in life and stuff, you know, like your project is the most important thing in the world for you, right? Like it's ridiculous, but it's true. It's true. And, and, you know, if that keeps you on the straight and narrow, keeps you out of trouble, um, you know, my life could have gone in a lot of different directions, like because of how young I was when I got into climbing. And had I not found it, like, you know, I, it's who knows what direction it could have gone. There's a lot of uh, precedent, you know, for things not going in a positive direction. So I look at it like that, and I, I just think to myself, you know, if, if, if I can at least demonstrate that, just, you know, be that, and if somebody else knows me and they're like, that's a good takeaway, you know, that worked for him. And it doesn't even have to be climbing. You know, that's a that's a thing about how I was talking about abstracting things. It doesn't have to be climbing. It's like if you can find something that you're passionate about in life, whether it's a hobby or some art that you do on the side, or if you can leverage it into your career, that's amazing as well. I don't think you necessarily need to get paid for the thing that you love. In fact, I've always been glad really that I kept it separate in in my life. You know, I did work for those climbing companies, but, you know, I never tried to be a professional climber or be a coach or whatever. It's like, I want to go climbing and not have to worry about a paycheck attached to that. Like, do this for the paycheck, do this for the climbing, you know. Um, but I think that it just, like, demonstrating the, the positive lifestyle that that, that 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 can give you, you know. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not standing up on the mountaintop preaching that, but, you know, people that know me would certainly know that about me. And, you know, I, I have the opportunity of like telling my students that in a very subtle way. I don't try to make it about me and climbing, but I try to like say like, look, you could make something of yourself, like, like stay focused, like stay out of trouble, like stay out of debt, you know, work hard. Like, it's not easy for everybody. Work hard is not the answer for everybody. It's it's just not, you know. But it doesn't hurt either, you know. The alternative of not working hard certainly never really did anything for anybody. <laughs> you know. So I think, I think there's that. And then, you know, uh, one thing I will plug, I'm working on this right now. It's a, it's a little bit shameful that I haven't done it sooner, but... Um, I tried a couple years ago and it just didn't it didn't get off the ground. Uh, but we're in the process of starting uh, a student club at the community college, so a, a climbing club, and I'm going to be the advisor for it. 
and it looks like we're finally going to get it off the ground this year. Um, so hopefully that'll be a good way to, to give something back as well to that to that community of young folks that, you know, and it's a little bit, you know, um, for me, it's it's like slightly tangential because, uh, you know, obviously I'm a, I'm a math professor, which has technically nothing to do with rock climbing, but I'm doing the rock climbing club. And, um, you know, everybody at the college, um, not everybody, but like my boss, the provost, like they all know I'm a climber um, because we've just we've just talked about it. And, you know, they ran an article about me in the school newspaper, you know, put a picture of me climbing in the school newspaper and stuff. So people know that I climb. So they're actually really supportive, like the like all the administrators that I know, they're really supportive of the idea. Uh, of starting this this club, so that'll be interesting, and hopefully we get it off the ground and and get some people exposed. That you know, not everybody not everybody gets the chance. You know, even the, with the climbing gyms, they're kind of expensive, so not everybody gets the opportunity to get exposed. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, hopefully that'll hopefully good things will come out of that. We'll see. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's neat. Yeah. What um, is there anything else that we haven't? talked about that I hope not. You'd, like, that you'd like to share <laughs> no I'm just really uh, glad that you're doing this I think that it, I think that it's a great idea um, as a project so so I'm, and I, I'm, I'm appreciative that uh, uh, I got to be included um, yeah hopefully something good came out of it I, I, I just think you know I just can't say enough good things about the local climbing community, you know, and I'm just happy to be a part of it, really. And, um, you know, that's that's another thing about climbing is it just, you, you're just going to have some of your best friends, you know, because of, because of climbing. So mm-hmm. um, I definitely, I definitely see that. And uh, yeah, so I think it's, I think it's good that people are getting to tell their stories. Mm-hmm. So Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please keep in mind that the views and opinions expressed in this interview are solely those of the oral history participants and do not reflect any views, opinions, or official policy at the University of Utah or the J. Willard Marriott Library. For more information about this podcast, check out the ascentarchive.lib.utah.edu. That's A-S-C-E-N-T-A-R-C-H-I-V-E dot L-I-B dot Utah dot E-D-U. The Ascent Archive podcast team includes librarians Tally Casucci and myself, Rachel Whitman. Special thanks to Leah Donaldson for graphic and website design, Brian Elias Hull for music, and thanks to the University of Utah Special Collections and the American West Center. And lastly, the rock climbing community for participating in these interviews and listening. Mm-hmm.